Morning. This, this is without doubt my favourite preaching engagement of the year. No doubt. But it's got nothing to do with anything other than geography. So forgive that as a start off. Um, I went to the London Bible College, which is as much fun as it sounds. And when I was there, I met a surprisingly pretty lady who eventually became my wife. And we have formed a cross-cultural marriage. She's a Scouser. I'm a Cockney. We logically ended up living in Hales Owen. So it's absolutely brilliant to be here. And I don't know about you, but I find it crass, unhelpful, unintelligent, and deeply annoying when people use sermons as an opportunity to advertise the ministry they're involved in. It's annoying, isn't it? However, I I lead a ministry, and I can just feel that you're just itching to hear about Youth for Christ. So, So what I thought we'd do, if it's cool, three or four minutes outrageously on Youth for Christ, then we'll move on to what God's put on my heart. Is that all right? Okay, Youth for Christ. Started in 1946 by a guy called Billy Graham. You may have heard of him. He came to Britain and he was so upset with the state of British teenagers, he started Youth for Christ. And 65 plus years on, we exist simply to take the good news of Jesus relevantly to young people. What a brilliant thing to do. And we do it with and on behalf of the church. We currently work with 250,000 young people a month. That's that's good. That's all right. But we want to reach a million young people a month. The reason being, a million would be 15% of all of Britain's teenagers. According to Malcolm Gladwell's secular research, The Tipping Point, once you reach 15% of any demograph, you have the ability to transform its culture. So all we've got to do is quadruple our reach in the midst of global economic meltdown, and we could transform a nation. People think that's ridiculous, but I think it's possible. Don't sing about God moving mountains and not believe he can do it. We could change a nation. We work in prisons, we work in schools, we work with churches, but really... We don't care about our brand. We're irrelevant. We're simply a catalyst to help the church reach young people. That's all we're interested in. So we love our partnership with this church. We're working together to reach young people. But I want them to come here, not to be connected to Youth for Christ in the long term, because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say anything about organisations. People say to me, but but come on, Gav, be honest. How does Youth for Christ and the church fit together? I say, okay, if you really want me to break it down, we are part of the Bride of Christ. We're just involved in the makeover because she's not pretty enough or young enough to get married. That's where we fit in. Two little headlines before I move on just to encourage you because everyone tells you that things are bad. Not everything's bad. We work in prisons. We're full-time in a quarter of all the 40 young offenders institutes in the country. We were recently independently assessed. When a young offender leaves prison, 75% of them recommit within the first, sorry, re-offend within the first year of leaving prison. That's terrible. But if you've worked with Youth for Christ in prison, 16% re-offend in the first year of leaving prison. You know, finding faith, meeting Jesus transforms your life. You then don't get caught or you don't commit crime. I'm not sure which of the two. But we are seeing genuine transformation. We've also just recently taken on the second biggest web resource for free RE lessons in the country. Anything from 2,000 to 6,000 schools use it every week. We've just taken it on. It looks awful. We're not saying it's ours and we're not giving out web addresses to you because you'll look at it and you think that looks rubbish. It does look rubbish. In nine months, it's going to look brilliant. But we are determined to merge that with some of our other things. And it would mean that next September, almost certainly, Youth for Christ will be the biggest provider of religious education material into schools in the country. Isn't that amazing? People think Christians can't do stuff now. There have never been so many opportunities for the church to change the world. We just need to look with the eyes of the prophet and say, Lord, what are today's opportunities? Edmund Burke says that one man sees a closed door, another sees an open goal. I can't help it. My life is full of open goals. And when you look, there's a lot of opportunities. Please pray for us down in the coffee area where they give you free coffee. Isn't that brilliant? I wondered if, uh, as well as taking a load of custard creams, I could take a vat of coffee for the week. But we'll see. But um, down there, we've got some prayer diaries for YFC. We, a prayer point for every day of the year. We just want to get serious prayer behind this ministry because the evil one doesn't half have a go. And I'm not sure Andy's infinite eloquence quite did justice to mine and Anne's new book. So in lieu of that, I'd like to say it's just come out in July. If you buy one, every penny goes to YFC. We take no royalty. This book's called Stumbling Block. $7.99 it retails out to you. Let's not be silly. Never going to do that. You're my friends. I haven't had to use much petrol to get here. So to you, outrageously, five pounds. But what this is, Can you put your hand up if you know someone that's been part of the church or followed Jesus for a while and given up over a fairly superficial issue? Nearly all of us. 
Stumbling blocks, 11 silly things. Well, not silly things, but life being hard, no men in the church, things going wrong, the girl not loving you back, fallen idols, broken dreams, whatever they may be. We've tried to help people because there is a heresy of our time. And the heresy of our time is prosperity gospel. And I'm sorry if I offend everyone, anyone. It is heresy. It's heresy because it says you follow Jesus and everything's perfect. That's a lie. You follow Jesus, you're a hopeless person, finds hope in Jesus, you have a go. It says in Revelation 7, there's a day when there's no more hurt, pain, difficulty, sickness or death. That day's not now. And so what we're trying to say to people is, get up off the floor and limp with and for Jesus. If you know someone who's left, buy two. I'll tell you why. Read one. Never give a book to someone you've not read yourself. Read one. Give one away. Because don't give them yours, because a second-hand present's not nice. Five pounds downstairs. <laughs> now I'm going to pray and ask for the Lord's forgiveness. Lord, I pray you would forgive me for overselling in your house. But it is done with the right motive of trying to help people follow you. And actually, Lord, on that issue, I pray there would be prodigals known within this church who would come back. I pray, Lord, whether it's through a half-baked book or something else, in your humour, bring people back, please. Might this be somewhere where people can flog back, flock back to? Might this be somewhere where people are not sort of held to account for what they did 10 years ago, but redeemed and set free? And for those in this congregation who've given up praying for that son or that friend, it's just been too long. This morning, Lord, might you show them that they could keep going, keep believing, and know that somewhere you're in control of this all. And Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray firstly we'd have fun. There's no reason why church should ever be boring. Might we have fun? But I pray too you'd speak to us. As I share with my friends over the next nine or ten hours or so, I pray, Lord, we'd enjoy being together but you'd open our spiritual eyes and ears to what we need to hear from you. Help us, Lord, to live lives that seek to bless you, not to just be blessed by you. Amen. I've had um, three interesting experiences in the last few years that have given me an absolute unwaning passion to see Britain changed. I think we've got a few things we need to work at, but, but some things have really shown me quite how much we need to see this nation of ours changed. And the first was when I got ordained. I got ordained. It's not a proper one, just a Baptist one. But I got ordained. And um, when I was going through that process, you go through all these interviews, and it comes to the last interview. You're either in or not. And I'm in this room with this old guy, and we're having a chat. And he says to me, young man, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? I said, I want to change the world for Jesus. I'll die in the process. He says, no. That's not sensible enough. That's not realistic enough. You need to be tangible, be tangible, be practical. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? I said, okay. I want to be involved in the greatest youth revival the world has ever known, and I want it to be in Britain. He says, no. That's not sensible enough. That's not realistic enough. He said, I've worked for the same church for for 10 years. We've seen three come to faith, many more leave. Young man, be sensible. Young man, be practical. Young man, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? I said, never turn out like you. Do you know, I wasn't meaning to be rude, but I was rude that day. Because I don't know about you, I never want to get up in the morning and think, Lord, what are you not going to do today? I never want to get up and think, Lord, how can you meet me at my minimalist expectation today? I want to get up every day believing that is the day we see things we've only dreamt or read about. I want to get up and believe this is the day the Lord's going to change this community. I want to get up and think, Lord, today's the day. And I want to do that every day until I'm a really old man. And one of two things happens. I either see it or I die. But I die full of hope instead of deciding now nothing's going to happen. Why why are Christians so down on themselves? It's like we're on deck chairs on the metaphorical Titanic and the iceberg's coming in. We're like, well, we've had a good run, haven't we? But we're going down now. No! Swing the boat around. We can save it. The church has got to have a better future than it's had a past in this nation. We have got to start believing that. That was the first thing. The second thing. I've got two children, which is amazing, considering me and Anne were told at St. Margaret's World, just up the road, we'd probably never have children. We've got two, which is wonderful. Um, And if you know people that are struggling, fertility is a time bomb in our time. Pray for it. Believe God can do things. And if he doesn't, learn to pastor people through it. It's really hard. But we've fortunately, by God's grace, got two kids. We've got a little daughter, Amelie. She's five and a half. She's a beautiful little princess. She's wonderful. She's lovely. The only problem she has, she talks like this. All right, mate. But apart from that, (laughs) apart from that, she's brilliant. Well, she was born in Dudley. Then, we've got a two and a half year old son, Daniel. He's like this big. He was born 10 weeks early, but if you saw him, he doesn't look premature. In fact, he's so big, he looks like he's eaten a premature baby. And um, it wasn't so long ago, it wasn't so long ago that Amelie thought it's a good idea to bite Daniel on the head. 
So she bit him on the head and she got sent to the naughty step. Now, the naughty step is for those of us parents who raise their kids at a time when you're not really allowed to punish them. We have to be more creative. So what happens with the naughty step to explain it is you have a minute on the step for every year you've been alive. That's your punishment on your own. So Amelie goes for five minutes. The, the only problem is I don't understand how it's a punishment. If you gave me 32 minutes on a step all on my own, that would be a spiritual retreat. <laughs> but Amelie goes to the step and after five minutes I go over to see her. She's really crying. I said, sweetheart, what's wrong? She says, does Jesus have to die again now? I'm like, why? She says, because I've been naughty again. So I explained, no, Jesus has died once and for all to set you free from everything you've done, everything you will do. I pushed for a decision, I didn't get one, but... Do you know, through the eyes of kids, you see how incredible God is. And do you think some of us have grown up a bit too soon? My friend Rob Parsons says, God doesn't have grandchildren. We're all children of God, whether you're 90 or five years old, you're a child of God. And for some of us, we've lost some of the awe and wonder. That might be why we expect God to do less. So, you know, I encountered pessimism in the church. I've then been totally challenged to be more like a child in my expectation of God. And thirdly, I went on the BBC radio. I I, I go on the BBC every so often. They can't find many young Christians to go on. But for me, it's brilliant. Because I was a 14-year-old who got banned from church for six months. Then later on, a few years later, I met Jesus. And that same rebel gets redeemed and quite likes the BBC because you have to be a rebel again because everyone's anti you. And um, I go on and I went on in one particular time on the Richard Bacon show and I went on against the editor of a magazine you will never have heard of because you're holy people. Nuts magazine. Nuts magazine is one of those crass men's magazines they try and pass off as lifestyle. It's soft pornography. It should be on the top shelf with a wrapper on it. And the editor of Nuts magazine is Eton Educated. That's where Princess William and Harry went. He's middle-aged and he's really posh. So it makes good radio to have him saying what he says and me saying what I say because it doesn't quite work because they think I'm too common to be a Christian. What a compliment. Anyway, we were on there discussing what do young men need out of life and it came towards the end of the show and the editor of Nuts magazine says, my magazine has everything a young man could need. It has pictures for them to look at, they like to look at. It has stuff on sport and it profiles gadgets. It's got everything a young man could want. Richard Bacon said to me, what do you think, Gavin? I said, well, my book has everything a young man could want. You don't have to read Song of Songs very long to realise what you're climbing the tree to grab. (laughs) I said that on the radio. (laughs) Goodness me. It said, there's loads of stuff on sport and running races. I said, and if you look at the development of the spear in the Old Testament, that is a proper gadget developing. I said, but my book is one thing that your magazine will never have. My book has the truth, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, I think sometimes as well, we're afraid to speak out with the truth. We live in an inclusive society, and what that actually means is you can't have an opinion on anything, because the minute you think anything is true or right, you're being offensive to everyone else. I'm not sure Jesus would have chosen that as an acceptable way of being. I think he'd have said, okay, well, if that's how you are, I still need to tell you there's truth. And I still need to live truth. And I still need to be truth. Those three things have had a profound impact on me. Because one, church, please, let's believe that God's going to do something amazing in and through us. Let's not be down on ourselves. And secondly, church, please, let's look at God as the God he is. He's massive, we're small. Let's capture some of that, that imagination of a child. How on earth could God have died for me once and for all? That's unbelievable. Don't lose the wonder. Thirdly, don't lose the ability to speak up and speak out for Jesus. As I've struggled so much with how humans are on this, you can't help but turn to the God who was divine and man. And turn in your Bibles, if you haven't, please, to Luke 19 to see how differently Jesus responded. If it's any help, it's page 888 in my Bible. Because I think if we really want to change a nation, and why not start with Hales Owen? You know, one of the things I find interesting, since moving to this part of the country 11 years ago, it's amazing what people say about this part of the country. It's amazing how outrageously rude some people are about this part of the country. And yet God has a sense of humour, doesn't he? I half think if he's going to start an outrageous outpouring and revival, it's going to happen somewhere that the media don't like. So, wouldn't it be great round here anyway? Luke 19 verse 41 says this, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, 
If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because the people hung on his words. I look at Jesus' example and I think, if only we could follow two or three of these ways. If only we could emulate some of how he does it. You know, the first thing that I think is so important is compassion. Jesus shows compassion. He comes down from the Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem. From the Mount of Olives, you can see the city. It's incredible. I've been there myself, and you see the city. It's now very walled and things, and there's the Golden Gate where the Messiah is coming back to, but some bright spark has bricked that up because, you know, the creator of the world can't get through a brick wall, of course. And you see it, but it looks incredible. And Jesus would have taken this same approach. He came down and he looked, and we know from the Greek in the passage That Jesus doesn't just have a sort of passing glance at Jerusalem. He really looks. He really stares. He looks beyond what they are doing right now into the results of that which it will become. Because he knows that 40 years after this point, the city of Jerusalem will fall because of the political dreams and ambitions of the Jewish people. Pursuing their own way, they bring an end to their own city for that time. And yet Jesus knows if they would just stop doing that and start following his ways, if they would just follow the path of God, then there would be no need for the pain of the city being destroyed. He knows exactly what they're going to do. It's an ultimate moment of free will going wrong. And instead of judging, instead of being high and mighty, Jesus falls to his knees and he weeps. And I think it's an incredible moment of compassion as he prays the tears of God over the covenant people destroying this city. And for how many of us do people think our starting position is compassion? Most would often say judgment, wouldn't they? Fascinating in the current debate over the new Archbishop of Canterbury. Clearly doesn't affect us. I'm a Baptist minister and you're Pentecostals. But two questions the media want to know about what the new Archbishop thinks. Only two. They're only interested in two. What do the candidates think about same-sex marriage? And what do the candidates think about women bishops? Doesn't that strike you as odd? I've not heard anyone say, what do the candidates think about Jesus? Or what do the candidates think the role of the church is? Or what do the candidates think about salvation? Or this Trinity thing, what do they think about? None of that. They're dealing with what I consider probably issues 501 and 502 on the list of importance. We are caricatured in our society as initially having all these awful views that are judgmental and narrow-minded and everything else. Don't hear me wrong. We mustn't go liberal on the nation. I'm so theologically orthodox, I'm boring. But do you know what? You think about what's important. What's important is Jesus is the centerpiece of my entire life. He is the creator of the cosmos. He is the God of the world. And when he sees people about to blow it, about to mess up and living outside of his will, he cries because he feels compassion. How much more do we need to seek to feel that compassion straight away on others? We need to ask God to see things the way he sees them. And instead of judging, weep. When I first became head of Youth for Christ, I got given a little list of people to go and see. Some of them were quite exciting. And I went to see one guy who ran a bank. And this was before bankers were seen as the imps of Satan. This was when they were seen as, you know, really good people. And I went to see this guy who ran a bank. And I got properly smart, you know. I normally dress smart out of respect for places. I came in this morning thinking I was a bit underdressed. Then I saw Leon and Andy, and I thought, wow, goodness me. Um, So if I get asked back, I might wear a string vest. But that's okay. (laughs) Drop that image. I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. Uh, Anyway, I was suited and booted. I went to see this banker guy. And I went in to see him. And we got on brilliantly. We really connected. It was great. His checkbook was liberal that day. Youth for Christ did well out of it. I came out of that meeting, I thought, Gav, you've done well, you've served God good today. And I walked back towards the tube station, and I walked past the doorway to a Tesco Express. And in that doorway, there was a girl crying, and I just walked past. And as I walked past, I felt something in my guts. I felt God telling me off. I felt in my guts, how dare you walk past her? 
You've just made that effort with that banker dude and you've just walked past her crying in that doorway. How dare you? I felt God directly challenging me. How dare I decide one human being is more important than another? At what point can I decide? Because someone can write a check for half a million to Youth for Christ. They're more important than someone crying in a door. That is nonsense. So I went back to speak to her, feeling chastised and punished. I said to her, what's wrong? She said, my husband's been knocking me around. I need to get to my mum's house in such and such a place. I called a cab over. I said, how much to such and such a place? She says, 25 quid. I looked in my wallet. All I had was 25 quid. I gave it to him. He took her. And I did not feel good. I felt I'd learned a really important lesson. All human beings are children of God. Now, every one of us, if we, if we search the depths of our hearts, every one of us has prejudices. You know, round here, I cannot believe how much Wolves and West Bromwich Albion fans hate each other. Because I support AFC Wimbledon. They have no rivals because they're rubbish. But, honestly, honestly, there'll be some people in this church who genuinely need to ditch the football nonsense. There'll be others for whom it's over race, it might be over gender, it might be over class, it might be over sexuality, it could be over anything. But every person's a child of God and we need to start seeing them like it. There's a guy near my daughter's school, my daughter goes to school in Lapple, that's how middle class we are. She goes to school in Lapple and um, there's a guy near the, near the school and occasionally you hear him coming, you very often, very rarely see him but you hear him coming. He's got various uh, mental health issues, he often doesn't have his top on and he shouts and he grunts and he says all kinds of things you shouldn't say near a primary school. You know what, initially I feel angry towards him, but then I have to tell myself Jesus died for him. We have to remind ourselves Jesus died for every person. Let's be a little bit more open-minded. Everyone is made in the image of God, therefore we should feel compassion towards all. And this morning, why not even be aspirational and try and ditch that prejudice you have that we might move forward and see all people as the children of God. I realised this when I was at a YFC residential a few years ago. These two lads come running up to me. First one says, and I won't say the actual words, or Leon really won't ever let me back. I mean, goodness me, the string vest may already be enough. But one of these lads comes up to me and says, I effing love Jesus. I thought, okay. His friend says, two effing right, I effing love Jesus too. And secretly in my head I'm thinking, this is effing brilliant. But <laughs> 99 out of 100 churches would kick those kids out. Nearly every church in this nation, those kids wouldn't get through the door. I said to them, tell me a story. Twelve hours earlier, they'd surrendered their lives to Jesus. They'd really come from darkness to light. They were miles away from the church. And in that moment, they were using an adjective, nothing else, just an adjective. Now, if they talk like that in three to six months, we've got a problem. That's discipleship. But in that instant moment, let's not kill people off before they start. You know, in that instant moment, I almost thought I should start talking like them. Why? To meet them where they are, to bring them to where I am. I don't know. But we should show compassion on all, not, not make petty little things. It's like when um, I still hear of young people around the country getting kicked out of church for wearing silly things or having the wrong thing tattooed or pierced or whatever. And honestly, can I just say something to you older folk? You look as ridiculous to young people <laughs> as, as they do to you. I had this realisation myself. In January, we launched Newham Youth for Christ. And I used the word sick, which the young people use about being good, right? They use the word sick. And I used it in a young person sense. And this little 14-year-old comes up to me after and goes, What, go on, blood? You is too old to use the word sick. <laughs> and do you know what? That's cool. I've accepted it. I can no longer, I can no longer shop in River Island. I've moved on to next, but M&S is a decade away. Anyway, <laughs> we must show compassion. Every person is a child of God. Don't make human divisions. God doesn't draw any. There's no special sections in heaven. There's just people praising forever. And a few more might make it if we drop some of our human prejudice. So compassion. Secondly, righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus acts with such violence. He acts with such violence in this moment. He, he goes to the temple and he acts really violently. And for a lot of people, they get confused here about what Jesus is doing. But the reality is, if God lives in you, then when you see things that are wrong, your blood should boil and you sometimes will be cross. I think a load of Christians have had some kind of medical procedure where the blood in their veins has been replaced with winter antifreeze so that you feel nothing. 
When you see things going wrong and you see people being hurt and you see the persecuted and the underclasses and people being treated like they're nothing more than a bit of muck, we don't get cross. Jesus does. So many people think the reason he gets so cross here is because people are selling in the temple. That's kind of a reason, but it's not really the reason. What would happen in your worship before the ultimate sacrificial lamb, Jesus died on the cross? You'd need to take a sacrifice of an animal every year to the temple to atone for what you've done wrong. And you'd take this animal and they would sacrifice it and that would be that. But here's the thing. The animal had to be perfect. That's why there's so much about Jesus being a spotless, perfect lamb. The animal had to be perfect. Any marks, any blemishes, any difficulties with it, the animal wasn't good enough. And at the temple, what they would do is they would pick on the poor. So if the poor bought an animal off their own back, they would find a reason why it wasn't good enough. So it got to the position where rich people could bring their own animals, poor people had to bring money and buy an animal at the temple because they were being prejudiced against. And then if you bought an animal at the temple, a poor person would be charged 15 to 20 times as much as a rich person. That's outrageous. That's exploitation. Because what are they trying to do? The poor are trying to come and worship God at the temple. So the very act of worship is being taken advantage of by people that don't need the money, taking it off those who do. And Jesus' blood boils as his heart for social justice becomes clear. This is not happening on my watch. And he comes in and he turns the tables over. Do you know what? I'd love to think I'd do the same. But I'm not sure. Because do we even look into our society and say, well, what's wrong? What's going wrong? Do we look into society? What makes us angry? Do we look into the church and say the same thing? You know, for years, William Wilberforce fought against the church as well as society to bring an end to the slave trade. Because loads of Christians were profiting off it. Are there things even within the church we need to challenge? You know, um, any of you that were spring harvesters back in the day may know of a guy called Alex Buchanan. He went to be with Jesus about 18 months ago. And he was like my granddad because I never really had one. And he was amazing. He, he had lots of physical ailments. He couldn't hear. He'd had a number of strokes, lots of physical ailments, but very spiritually powerful. That's why we called him Yoda. <laughs> when he was 24, he went to his first church in Liverpool. And he went along. And in the first week there, it was a church that had choir stalls and all the worship was led by the choir. This is no comment on choirs. It's just in this specific instance. And he felt God say to him, the choir stalls and the choir there are holding the church back in worship. So he went to see the vicar after church. He went and saw the vicar, said to the vicar that's holding the church back in worship. The vicar did what vicars do. You're taught to do this at Bible college. He said to him, go away, pray for a week. And if you still feel the same, come and see me next week. The reason they say that is you never remember for a whole week. Four weeks in a row this happened to Alex. Four weeks in a row he went to see the vicar. Four weeks in a row the vicar sent him away for a week. So after four weeks he went to his shed. And he got an axe. And he went down to the church on a Sunday afternoon. And he broke into the church. And he chopped up the choir stalls. And he took them out the front of the church and he had himself a bonfire. And the vicar comes along later and, and Alex is having a fire. And the vicar says to Alex, what are you doing? He says, I'm having a fire. The vicar says, what with? He says, the choir stalls. Now, on this occasion, the vicar didn't press charges so they could continue. Do you know, within the next little while, the church trebled in size, quadrupled in size. Why? Because actually, the format of the way they were doing things was stayed and they'd got stuck in tradition. and It was holding the church back in worship. And someone like Alec, would get locked up for that. That's nuts. What are you doing that for? But sometimes we've got to stand out, speak out, and act out in order to change the world. Sometimes God makes it clear, and we've got to stand up and say, this is not right. Not on my watch. You know, what makes you angry? I look at um, our nation, and some things make me really angry. They should do. I'm really, I'm really angry and upset about a hero of mine recently who's helped me at times in my preaching, lectured at our Bible college, been massively influential, and he's left his wife for some girl 30 years younger. Well, I'm really angry. Why? Because I see the results of that behavior. And the results of that behavior are young lads growing up insecure, trying to be the big man, not knowing what to do. Then not knowing how to father or how to be a husband. You know what? If in this nation we could bring back marriage to the forefront of society and absent parenting became far less of an issue, you'd begin to change the nation. But it makes me angry that someone thinks, oh, there's a prettier younger model, I'll move away. Without looking in the mirror and seeing that he wasn't a prettier younger model. 
It makes me angry that, that, that kids self-harm because they don't know how else to express themselves. It makes God angry. It was an incredible moment when Anne was leading the New Wine Youth this summer and a girl had written worthless in her forearm. And it had scabbed over, so her message to the world was worthless. I am worthless. And during some of the worship, they were proclaiming truth over the young people. The team weren't going to the young people, just around the edges, proclaiming God's truth. This girl's got her eyes shut. She opens her eyes. The word worthless is gone. Because it makes Jesus angry too. That someone would look at themselves and think, I am worthless. Jesus comes and says, no, you're worth something. It makes me angry that there's 47,000 churches in Britain and 45,000 kids in care. makes me angry because it just seems so obvious. If each church took one, we'd sort the problem out. Wouldn't that be amazing? It makes me angry, as the video showed, that girls are sex trafficked. makes me even more angry since having a daughter of my own. No one's got a right to traffic a human being and exploit them for sexual gratification. That is wrong. That's why you should come on Wednesday, because it's wrong. It makes me angry that there's no male role models for young people. It makes me angry that young people are caricatured the wrong way. That the media can say what they like about kids. You know, when a few teenagers were a bit naughty last summer, they called them riots, and um, I got to go on the BBC News. And it was on the 6 o'clock news, the lady says to me, why are all the young people of Britain rioting? I said, they're not. I said, I was in a field in Shepton Mallet yesterday, and there were more young people praising Jesus in one field than rioting in the whole of Britain. We need perspective, don't we? It makes me angry that they think they can make it look like every kid was writing. It makes me angry. You know, we stand on the shoulders of so many Christian giants. I mentioned Wilberforce, but what about a church in the NHS? What about educating before anyone else would, then educating women when society wouldn't? What about Jesus giving credibility and, and integrity and leadership to women when most people wouldn't listen to them? We stand on the shoulders of social justice throughout the history of the church and we mustn't be on mute and we mustn't not act because we can't see what to do. We need to say to God, God, what is wrong in your world? Help me see it in your colours, not mine. Mother Teresa used to get annoyed because so many people would come to her and say, can I come to Calcutta? And she'd just say, don't come here. Open your front door. There's your Calcutta. Open your front door. There's your Calcutta. Let's deal with the problems here. Lots of people keep trying to define what the big society is. I'm not sure myself. I've been to a number of meetings, including with the head of it, and I'm not sure what it is. But I am sure of one thing. Churches shouldn't moan about the big society. We've been given back our social responsibility that somewhere we abdicated. Let's make sure we stand in the gap and do things to change this nation. And stand up for the least and the lost and say, this is wrong, not on my watch. Let's no longer just be timid and quiet. At times you've got to say, this is not happening here. Compassion, righteousness. And finally, courage, courage. In many ways, this is the hardest one. It's really hard to be really brave and really courageous. That's why sometimes you've got to give yourself a pep talk. You know, a dad took his son, his newborn son, to the supermarket, and his newborn son was absolutely screaming his head off. Two things happened in that moment. If you've never had kids, you think, can't they just shut that child up? If you've got kids, you think, thank you, Lord, it's not my go today. And the, <laughs> the dad's going around the supermarket, he's putting food in his trolley, and he can be heard saying, it's all right, George, we're nearly done. Don't worry, George, we're nearly finished. George will be home before we know it. He gets into the queue. He's waiting to pay for his food. This lady comes up to him and says, I have been so encouraged to see how you've shared with your little son, little baby George, as you've gone around the shop. The dad looks a bit confused. So she tries again. She says, I've just been, it's just been so wonderful to see how you've interacted with little George. The dad says, no, 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 no. He's not George. I'm George. <laughs> Some of us have got to give ourselves a pep talk to keep going. Some of us have got to say, come on, come on, Gav, keep going. Be brave. Stand up, speak up. Know when to shut up, but be brave. Be courageous. Because in the story, the authorities are trying to kill Jesus. That's literally, they're trying to kill him. They're just waiting for him to put one foot out of line so they can kill him. The wise thing to do would be to back off for Jesus, say nothing, and go and hide away. 
but he doesn't. He's got the message of hope. He's the saviour of the world. So he speaks up and he stands up and he keeps going. And he knows at some point they'll get him. But for now, the people are hanging on his words. So he's courageous. And in the shadow of death, keeps speaking truth into the world. How many of us back down too easily? When we need to speak truth into the world, we need to keep being courageous. Now, I think sometimes some of the problem is we think we've got nothing to bring. We think we are worthless. And my daughter, Amelie, was a bit obsessed with Bruno Mars for a little while. And she was speaking to her grandma on the phone. And she says to her grandma, who's not very cool, so doesn't know who Bruno Mars is. Grandma, do you know what happens when you smile? Grandma says, no, Amelie, what happens? Amelie says, the, the whole world stops and stares for a while. And then Grandma, and Amelie says, do you know why, Grandma? Grandma says, no, why, why? Amelie says, because, Grandma, you're amazing. Just the way you are. <laughs> I get given the phone. Amelie's gone off all sort of ambivalent. I get the phone, and my mum's proper bawling. She's proper crying. She says, you'll never guess what Amelie said to me. She said that when I smile, the whole world stops. Because <laughs> I'm amazing. <laughs> Just the way I am. I said, oh, don't worry, she says that to everyone. <laughs> Do you know what, though? God says to everyone, you're amazing. You're absolutely amazing. You're brilliant. You're fantastic. The world might tell you you're not, but you're amazing. He, he says to you, when I made you, I, I was showing off. And I threw away the mold, not because I didn't, it was broken or anything, but do you know what? One was enough. And get close to any human being, you will realize one is enough. They are suitably unique. But the last thing the world needs is two of anyone. But one of each is perfect. And he doesn't make mistakes in the way we do. He thinks you're brilliant. He thinks you're wonderful. And the biggest thing we could do is hold back what we have because we think it's nothing. Let's not do that. My favorite story in the Bible shows this. The feeding of the 5,000, though really it's the feeding of the 12 to 15,000. Someone just got lazy and only counted the men. And in the story, Jesus goes from one side of the lake to the other, either on a boat or walking around the side. I did that on a boat with an engine. It took an hour and a quarter. It's a long way. So after hours of travelling, Jesus arrives at Tabgah. Tabgah's a natural amphitheatre in the ground. You can be heard as clearly a mile back as a metre away. When you made the world, you don't need microphones. You just need to remember where you dropped your amphitheatres. And twelve to 15,000 people an hour or so later gather around, and they're all hungry. They've used their ancient world carbohydrate. Their leucozades run out. They are hungry. And they sit in this field, and their tummies rumble at once, and the ground shakes. boom 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 And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, fellas, any of you got lunch for this lot? Can you imagine? And 11 of them do nothing. But Andrew, Simon Peter's brother in John 6, 8 and 9, comes to Jesus with a little boy's packed lunch. And as good as says, don't know what you can do with this, but you're Jesus, so have a go. That packed lunch was terrible. We know factually it was. It was using barley loaves, the cheapest form of bread. Aldi value bread. Then you mix in with that, the fact that there's fish, and it's hot in Israel, about 40 degrees. Fish and heat don't go well together. I realised this when I left two sardines on the staff and radiator at Bible College over the weekend. They don't go well together. So you've got smelly fish, cheap bread. Those are the facts. But there's one anecdotal youth ministry reason why we know it's absolutely awful. Absolutely awful lunch. It's terrible. Because a young lad, and young lads eat everything, let's not forget that. A young lad who's absolutely starving has looked at it and thought, I don't fancy it, you have it, Jesus. And Jesus feeds a field with it. No one complains. There's food left. In fact, young people, use the Bible against your parents. They'll use it against you. I used to say to my mum, why should I finish off my plate of food when Jesus doesn't make them finish off the basketfuls? But in the story, little boys pat lunch, seemingly worth nothing, does that. Do not tell me your equivalent cannot change the world. We just have to bring it to Jesus and as good as say, Jesus, this don't look like much, but have a go. Because you're Jesus. And sometimes it means doing crazy things. You end up doing crazy things you'd never do. Because you start being obedient to God and, and bringing your little and saying, all right, God, have a go. Having the courage to act on silly things. I, I experienced this a couple of years ago. I was at Soul Survivor and I was feeling a bit sorry for myself because it's hard leading ministries in recessions. And I felt God challenge me. Stop feeling sorry for yourself and start thanking those in the limelight that make a difference to young people. Because when you're in leadership, very few people thank you. It's interesting. So if anyone here has blessed you in their leadership, thank them. And so I started writing letters to people to thank them for making a difference to young people. 
I wrote to the Prime Minister. I wrote to Richard Branson, Tony Blair. It's amazing. When you write to these people and say you run a ministry that works with a quarter of a million kids a month, they all write back. Interesting. Let's not pretend that influencers in this country don't care about youth. And then I was watching this documentary where Fern Britton interviewed Doc Cotton. Her actual name's June Brown, but you'll all know her as Doc Cotton from EastEnders, so we'll keep her as that. And in this interview, Doc talked about how the Lord has transformed her life, and it was inspiring. So I wrote to Doc Cotton and thanked her for being a good role model to young people. Then about six months later, I got a phone message at work. Doc Cotton just rang. Would you ring her back? So I rang her up. She answers the phone. First thing that freaks me out, she does not put on a voice in EastEnders. So literally, I'm speaking to Doc Cotton, and I'm thinking of giving him a laundry, but I didn't. She says, I was ringing you to thank you for your letter. She says, in EastEnders, there was a baby swap plot where they swapped over babies after a cop death. It was all very immoral. And they'd written me in to say a few things that made my Christianity look stupid. So I photocopied your letter, gave it to each of the writers of EastEnders, and said, how can you make my Christianity look stupid when this young man's thanking me for being a role model to young people? And so she said, I wanted to thank you because they changed the script then to be positive about Jesus, not negative. And that goes out to 10 million people. I was like, oh, okay. okay. It was a terribly written letter. And I know the price of stamps has gone up, but look what God can do. She then says to me, I don't really like EastEnders, but, but I'm the only Christian on it, and I'm God's light there in that dark environment. Isn't that amazing? She then says to me, what can I do for you? And I'm thinking, don't ask for a check. Don't ask for a check. <laughs> so I've got my diary up. I put a date in, YFC auction. I said, we've got an auction coming up. Could you send me some stuff? Within a week, she'd sent me a road sign signed by the cast, scripts, various things. A picture. If you had it on your wall, you wouldn't sleep. It's Doc Cotton holding a baby in one hand, a cigarette in the other. It says, which would Doc give up first? <laughs> she then says to me before the conversation ends, I want you to do one last thing for me. I want you to come and see me and tell me what God's doing amongst young people in this country. So I went to see Doc Cotton. She opens her front door. First thing she says, oh, you look like a lovely young man. Then we go in, we sit in her back garden. She smokes a lot, which she comments on. Apparently mine was the first ever thank you letter she'd had from a Christian. She's had many, many about smoking. She says, it is the thorn in my side. I'm still trying to give up, she says. But at 85, I'm hardly an advert for the fact that smoking kills. <laughs> we then talk about the uh, impact of YFC and the difference we make. We had a great time. Come to the end of our time together. I said, you know what, Dot? I've prayed for you every day since we encountered each other. She says, Why? I said, you're the only person I know who has the potential to reach 10 million people with the good news of Jesus. So I said, can I pray for you? She says, yeah, keep praying for me. I said, no, no, can I pray for you now? She said, no one's done that for years, but, but okay. And then she stands up. She says, the last time someone did, they put their hand on my head. It felt good. Would you put your hand on my head? By this point, I'm like, whatever, Jesus. So I'm in Doc Cotton's lounge. She's little. I've got my hand on her head. I pray a proper penty prayer. Lord, bless, equip, anoint, use. She starts to cry. I think, Gav, you've really blown it. You've really blown it. She rushes out the room. She doesn't run. She's 85. She meanders at a pace. And she comes back in, still crying, holding a checkbook. She writes me a check for YFC. I said, what are you doing? She said, you've blessed me. I'm blessing you. At that point, I should just leave and be thankful, shouldn't I? I opened my jacket. I said, I'm really sorry, Doc. Would you mind? I've got a gift aid form. (laughs) It's important to be tax efficient. But the point of the story is this, really simply to finish. A badly written letter in the hand of God can influence culture. A little boy's pat lunch in the hand of God can transform a situation. Let's bring our little. You know, goodness me, it's not in my remit. I lead youth for Christ. I've got a significant friendship with an 85-year-old soap star. That has nothing to do with youth for Christ. But the minute you said you're a living sacrifice to Jesus, you don't make the rules, he does. And you have the courage to act on them. So if I need to be great friends with Doc Cotton, that's wonderful. And you know what? I gave her theological advice for an hour and a half on a script she's looking at the moment. Why? Because she hasn't got anyone else doing it. And that's the bottom line. If you want to change a nation, it's not on your terms and conditions. It's not in the way you like. It's not with the people that look, sound, and smell like you. It's not in a way that you've always dreamt of. It's not always glamorous. It's not always brilliant. But I tell you what, it's the most fulfilling, most amazing, and most incredible thing you can do with your life. When I first became an evangelist, someone told me that it was very exciting. I realised it's not exciting. It's far more about eating Ginster's pasties at half one in the morning on the way home because you can't buy any other food than it is about being exciting. But I'll tell you something. This nation will only be changed by a bunch of us saying, do you know what? We're not going to minimise our expectations. We want you to do outrageous things, Lord. By saying, do you know what? We're not going to lose the awe and wonder we had as children. You are God. Help us to keep seeing you as the hand. And do you know what? 
when there's a moment to speak out or act out, we're going to do it. Jesus models us three things that are a great start. You see, God always does in the small what he'll later do in the big. Never starts in the big. And the three small things we could start to adopt today is to be compassionate. Every person Jesus died for. Is to be righteous. Speaking into society and saying, not on my watch, that is wrong. And it's to be courageous. Even though you think what you have in your locker or in your toolkit isn't much, it's as much as a little boy's skanky pat lunch that the little boy turned down. Bring it to Jesus and say, come on. I am desperate for the church in Britain to have a better future than it's had a past. It starts one missionary at a time. Let's pray. In fact, if you're able, I wonder if you'd stand with me. I feel like these are three very specific areas that we'd love to pray into. And what we're going to do to do this is in a minute, Dan is going to come and stand here with me, if that's okay, Dan. And to this, to my right-hand side, your left-hand side, if you want Dan to pray that you would be more compassionate, if you want to put down some prejudices that stop you ministering to certain people, if you want God to do a work in your life to see every person as his children, if that really struck you and you really felt in your guts, I need to deal with this. I need to feel those tears of God for people. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to join Dan, and he's just going to pray for some guys over there. Then I'm going to ask Alison, if that's all right, to join me here, and then going out this side, because we can't all go to the same place. If you want God to help you see with his righteous eyes some of the things in society that are wrong, if you, want, if you feel actually some ways you've gone to sleep in, in seeing what's wrong, and you want God to awaken that, if, if you notice something in your heart, and you want God to fan it into flame to make a difference in society, we... Here is the church at the hands and feet of Jesus. If you want God to help you to see with his righteous eyes what is right and wrong in the world, Alison would love to pray for you. And finally, Andy's going to go to the back. And if you would love to be prayed for specifically for courage, that you would have the courage to speak up and, and you would have the bottle to bring your little boy's pat lunch, as it were, and say, Lord, this is all I've got. Have a go. If you would like the courage to sometimes take opportunities you otherwise miss, in a minute go and join Andy. You might want to go to all three. And if you do, well, I'm sure we can make that happen. But if one in particular has challenged you, I'm going to invite you just right now where you are to be brave and come and join Dan for compassion, Alison for righteousness, or Andy for courage. And then what we'll do is we'll pass the microphone around those three and they will pray over that group that God would really do that work in you today. So if one of those is particularly for you, Please just uh, move that. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, thinking on compassion, Lord. And Lord, we know that our, our hearts, our hearts can become hard and they can become cold. And Lord Jesus, I pray right now you'd fill us with your spirit, Lord. These people gathered here who are, who are asking after compassion, Lord Jesus. And, and, and start with me, start with me, start with us, Lord Jesus. We'd be compassionate for, for your world, Lord God. Lord, and the people we're in relationship with, the people who possibly we're not in relationship with, the people who we don't see. Like Gavin told that story about that woman in the doorway who who he walked straight past, Lord God. The people who we don't see. Lord, I pray that we'd look with your eyes, Lord Jesus. We'd look with your eyes and we'd see those people again. Lord, and we'd go to them, Lord God, and we'd act in compassion. Lord Jesus, with open hearts and open hands and ready to give. Lord, ready to give ourselves to making a difference. Lord Jesus, the heart of compassion that you had, Lord, may you form that heart in us. Form that heart in us. And may we speak and act with the words that you had when you wept over Jerusalem. May we weep over people, over situations, and bring your compassion into it. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. God, we thank you that you gave us such a great example in Jesus, that you gave us a saviour who had passion, who became angry, who expressed righteous indignation when stuff was just wrong in the world. And God, stuff's still wrong in the world. It's so wrong. And Lord, I pray right now for all of us, but most specifically for those guys just stood here this morning who are asking for a heart that's like yours for their eyes to be opened to the stuff that's wrong. 
God, I pray for these guys that this week they will see stuff they have never seen before. God, open their eyes, open their ears to the cries of the wounded, the oppressed, the vulnerable, the poor, the weak, the outcast, the people that you called us to spend our lives poured out to. And God, I pray for them that as they see you and they see where you want them to act, that God, they will know your presence and your power. God, that you'll enable them to respond with a godly righteousness, not human anger, but with a godly righteous indignation that says this stops now. Lord God, open their eyes, I pray. Open their ears, open all of our eyes and our ears and help us to give our lives for the things that you really called us to give because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Joshua 1 verse 7 says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God, I thank you that you do not give us a spirit of timidity. But God, you have given us courage and boldness, God. And I pray for an increase of that right now in your people. God, I pray that you would uh, present to us opportunities, God, that that we can bring the little that we can offer, God, and that that you would use it to do something incredible. God, I pray that you would give us boldness beyond what we ever thought that we could ever achieve. God, would you take the the small things, our, our little boys pack lunch, and just turn them into incredible stories for your kingdom. God, we want to see your kingdom come on this earth and your will be done. But God, would you start with us? God, give us the boldness and the courage to deal with things in our lives that we need to deal with in order that your kingdom can come and your will be done in our lives, God, so that we can see it in our towns, in our cities, in our streets, in our schools, in our workplaces. God, would you give us the boldness to to share your word, God, to, to do what you're calling us to do. God, I pray right now that you would uh, fill us with a spirit of boldness. In Jesus' mighty name.